0: Well, welcome to Sheep Stuff You Should Know. This is another special episode because we are uh, in person recording, all three of us, here at uh, Dan Makin's um, Bricked Soundproof Studios up in uh, Placerville. Um, so welcome, Dan and Rosie. How are you guys today?
1: Doing good, doing good. Nice to have you guys up in Auburn. and And just to give you a history on where we're recording from, this was a military hospital, and then it was a mental institution, and now it's the cooperative extension offices for Placer County. So I think in terms of sanity level, it may have you know, stepped down over the course of the years.
2: <laughs> it's a little smoky up here, too, today, huh? As we were driving, we kind of hit the smoke wall. Coming up.
1: Welcome to the foothills in September. Yeah, yes. Oh yes. We actually had some clear weather earlier in the week, but... Uh, It'll be like this till we get a real rain and snow, I think.
0: Yeah, and that's going to be in like what in a couple
1: of days. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we can hope. We can hope.
0: Well, cool. Well, cool. Well, this is a really cool building. I love the brick, and uh, it's nice to know that they've uh, they've changed businesses, but the clientele remains the same. Exactly. The entire, exactly. The, the entire <laughs> tenure. So <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, well, today we wanted to get together in person and talk about kind of some stuff that's been in the news. Um, uh, kind of a, it's California-centric issue, but it's also applicable nationwide, I think. And um, it kind of centers around uh, custom processing, local farm to farm to fork movements, being able to raise products on your on your property and sell it in a cost-effective manner. Um, but then also maintain food safety. Um, so there's a, I, I guess you could, you get into the, I guess best would probably be background of. Um, so as it is right now in California, Dan, um, do you want to maybe just give a quick, quick rundown of you know what what the what's bringing this issue up?
1: Sure, sure, absolutely. And this is you know something we had experience with when we were doing a lot of direct marketing of meat. Um, but currently in California, in order to sell a, for me to sell you a piece of meat that I raised, I have to have that animal proce- slaughtered and, and processed at a USDA inspected facility. If you're going to come to the farmer's market and buy meat that I produced, um, it has that every package of that meat has to have the USDA inspection bug on the label. And, in and... Kind of to simplify at least my understanding of the history of that, it's it's kind of treated almost like a kidnapping. Um, there's an assumption that if you're selling meat, it's going to travel across state lines, and so you have to have federal inspection in order to be able to sell that piece of meat. There's been some change in that recently, um, particularly with cattle. Um, there was a, uh, some legislation passed a couple of years ago that allows um for on ranch harvest of cattle that's where the beef is going to be sold in its entirety to somebody else Um, it wouldn't allow that to be sold at the farmer's market but you could i could buy a a steer from you and and have it harvested at your place there's also for a long time been an exemption for poultry up to twenty thousand birds a year can be processed without usda inspection as long as it's the family doing the processing and as long as all those birds are going to the end user. So that would be at a farmer's market. They could be sold retail as long as they're, they're going to the end user. So that, that's kind of the, the brief background of all of this. Um, you know, it, it, um, When we started doing meat at farmer's markets, it cost me $50 a head to get harvest and cut and wrap done. Um, and I think that's the other piece of that, that, that the economics um, folks have started to realize a little bit now too. And it's, it's a lot more expensive to get that work done, whether it's a custom processor or it's going through a USDA plant.
0: And then just for anybody listening, we did record an episode February 17th titled Direct Meat Sales, where we get into a lot of the details. So um, we're going to probably, of skim over a lot of that now and kind of get into this this uh, discussion that's happening and um, you know i'd encourage anybody to jump back and listen to that if they want to get a little more background on on um, kind of what it takes to take an animal and get it to market in today's regulatory climate
1: especially if you have insomnia i would recommend <laughs> going back to that
0: it's it was a phenomenal ex- episode just absolutely amazing um i'm joking anyway um uh, so uh, there was a paper that was generated and uh, Dr. Bush, you got that right there in front of you. Um, and that paper has kind of generated a, a bit of discussion on on the need to, excuse me, to look at reform. Uh, the, the, some of the words they're using is reform the meat chain supply in order to, um, you know, to, to maintain that farm to fork attitude. And I was just curious, do you want to give a quick, chat on what that paper is and what it entails and how it's kind of brought some of these issues up.
2: Yeah, I think this paper was looking, they did a number of roundtable focus group type of talks. They did some phone interviews to kind of first step identify what some of these challenges and opportunities might be in order to enhance the food system's resilience and Obviously, their focus is on local food systems, um, but it's, so it's kind of a, it's almost like an informal needs assessment, um, and there's, you know, from here, next steps that would go, but they, they definitely identify uh, quite a number of different areas Um that a lot of them were access to markets, um, so these—that's where this kind of whole conversation about p- food processors come in. Um, so,
0: so how do we, how do we as industry, how do how do we uh, industry? We're not supposed to say the word industry according to convention, but uh, anyway, I have never been one for conventional wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you uh, did there. That is a pun. Um, anyway, um, how do we? How do we kind of? I don't know. What do you guys think about this issue? I mean, you want to just go ahead and put your cards on the table. I mean, how do how do we um, ensure a safe food supply, uh, maintain competition, don't punish uh, successful packers, but then also allow for opportunities for some small uh, meat processors to to start to grow. I mean, what do you guys what do you guys think?
1: You know, I think I think with the proper systems in place. And I think it's, it's good to point out that these state inspected plants, if they exist, also have to follow um, hazard analysis and critical control points plans. They have to have a HACCP plan in place um, if they're state inspected. Um, so I think, I think opening that market up a little bit, to me, is positive. I think the economics have driven some of the large processors not to be able to do the kind of custom processing for direct marketers that they once did. And I think um, that has limited access to people my size and and even a little bigger to be able to do direct marketing cost effectively. Um, That said, I think we need to be honest about the economics of direct marketing too. We found when we were doing it, and I think we may have said this in our, in our prior episode, I've come to the conclusion that if I can't raise a live lamb profitably, I shouldn't be spending more money to turn it into meat to try to make a profit, that I make my money on raising the animal. Now, I think we can talk about local food systems and how we get more of what's grown here sold here in, in Placer County, for example. Um, but we can't lie to ourselves about the economics of doing it, either. It's not a hobby.
2: Yeah, I, I don't know. So the just so I think we're clear on what we're all talking So processors could be these custom-exempt processing plants. They could be state-inspected. Um, they can sell that product as long as the animal is slaughtered at a USDA-inspected slaughter facility, whether that's a mobile slaughter or a brick and mortar um and that then that carcass can be transported to a state inspected processing plant um so i think yeah just the we talk a lot about the regulatory environment and how challenging it is for small processors and i'm i'm i can't even imagine you know i For small processors with a few employees, I'm sure there's a lot of hoops to jump through to be able to meet these, even state inspection standards. I know there's a lot of plants that have, um, or facilities, even small facilities that have closed because they were struggling even to meet state inspection standards. So I'm sure that regulatory environment is burdensome.
0: Well, a lot of that's actually just like fees that are tied to inspection services or things like, it's a different issue, but um, if you're gonna shear sheep in California, you need to get a um, contractor's permit. In order to get a contractor's permit, you have to pay ten thousand dollars, whether you shear one sheep, zero sheep, or a hundred thousand sheep. So your guys with a lot of sheep can justify it. A guy trying to shear a handful of sheep can't afford it. Yeah. So not and to say that
2: they they weren't meeting standards, they weren't able to afford. Yeah, to, you know Yeah, as volume prove that they as volume
0: decreases. Your percent cost of these regulatory fees goes up to the point where you don't have a profit margin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: yeah. Sorry, I derailed you. That's there. okay. <laughs> no, and I don't know. I think there's a lot of value in having this kind of resiliency. I mean, we sh- we saw the incredible vulnerability that we had in the industry with COVID, and you know, and not even only related to COVID, but other businesses shutting down and. You know, having one company slaughter lambs is a bit scary. And so,
0: um, I'd like to kind of try to dig into that point right there a little bit. So, um, with COVID, and this was in all the protein sectors, we had these—you'd have a health, health up, you'd have a health outbreak in a plant, and it would shut down that plant for a period of time. Which, or you would have enough of a percentage of the workforce missing. Where you wouldn't be able to get the throughput through. And it just, it really opened up a huge vulnerability in our meat supply chain. And that vulnerability still exists today. Mm-hmm. And I would probably argue that with a lot of the labor force issues that we're having that are indirectly COVID related, are almost making it worse where we have as much or more vulnerability today as before. And so, how, know, what are some of the ideas? Or how could like these smaller, how could like a smaller processor or more diversity within the processing sector help that situation in the general climate that we're having? Do they even have a chance if, if the big guys can't get a guy to come cut meat, can the small guys get it? And how do you, you know, what, what do you guys think of that?
2: I mean, I think that's something that they were able to expose in the report is that even for the small guys, it's hard to find skilled employees who can process, you know, cut a carcass and process these, um, the meat. So I think that that's a a challenge across the board. Um,
1: Yeah, I would agree. I I don't know that that. I think it's identified as a problem. I don't know that anybody's identified what the solution is. I think there's probably some value in in s- increasing the redundancy and capacity of the system to some extent. That said, um, I think finding people that can do the work is a tremendous challenge. I think the other challenge for a lot of these small regional plants, um, and we actually here in, in the foothills had done a... Um, kind of a feasibility study on putting a plant somewhere up here. And one of the big holes that I'm not sure anybody's been able to figure out here is the seasonality. You know, are you going to be able to keep a crew on if they're only working six to eight months out of the year, maintain their skill level and their competency and say, we'll call you next April when the spring run starts again?
0: And and that's an issue for any grass based production system i mean we're we're in a seasonal area and we're going to have seasonal grasses and those seasonal grasses only produce when they're viable and so the smaller the place the harder the more seasonal it's going to be right
1: absolutely absolutely um
0: gosh you made me think of something else that came (laughs) up in here and then you got me excited about the seasonality um and the grass-fed deal
1: um, we just try to keep you off track all the oh, time. Oh, um,
0: so skilled, like skilled labor, like what, is that a lack of training? Is that a lack of, um, high paying jobs with that butchery type mm. skill? What, what exactly, you know, what, what is the skill that is lacking and how can that be improved? Is it, is it a wage issue? Is it a, is it a trade apprenticeship issue? You know, what, where, where do you guys think that sits?
1: Yes, it's all of those. <laughs> no, that's a really good question. I think I think to some extent it is kind of a training in trades issue. I think I think it's broadly part of a larger trend away from the trades um, that I think has lots of ramifications for us as a society and for ag in particular. Um, I think it's partly a wage issue, and I think. We come back to economics in that regard. And and I think in a little bit, we'll probably get into this idea of what what protein costs and what it should cost and what people are willing to pay. Um, I think the other piece of that for some of these small regional plant ideas is just the logistics. It's going to take somebody in there who's just getting business and managing the flow through the plant. And that's not a skill that very many people have when it comes right down to it.
2: Yeah, the report identifies a few formal training programs, but they're in colleges. And I think if you're coming out with college debt, probably going into meat processing isn't going to be necessarily their first job that they're going to apply for necessarily. I think it's a really great skill, but it goes back to that trade apprenticeship type of system that we've kind of, it has just, Totally faded out of our society.
0: But, like the apprenticeship type system, that would only work if you had small butchers that would take in basically, um, you know, out of high school students and teach them a trade through that. And then that would open up an opportunity somewhere else. But you'd need to have these small butchery places in order to actually be able to do that. And I don't know, there's only a handful of those around. I, I was curious, do you know any good small Butcher shops that, that you, know, you you mentioned that the logistics and the type of personality, do, do you have any that are really kind of shining examples of that kind of person?
1: I just had two microphones shoved in my face. I didn't know what to do. You were so excited to talk. <laughs> so could, we could all see it on your face. <laughs> there are some small examples of that. Um, you know, I think here in the foothills, we've got a, a handful of, um, of really good kind of custom exempt Meat shops that'll do—they'll—they'll they'll do everything from my lambs to um, processing game to buying boxed primals um, from larger processors and and kind of custom marketing that. Um, kind of the the best example here in Placer County for me, and this is not meant to say anybody else is bad, but I've I've worked with Roseville Meats for a lot of years, and they do a tremendous job, and in fact. Interesting kind of COVID um, impact that they had last time I took lambs in there, um, their chief meat cutter told me that the day after the COVID shutdown happened in March of 22, they were totally out of product. There was such a rush on their business that they couldn't source enough product to keep inventory. Um, but they've got, you know they've the guys that have worked there that I've known for 15 years were there when I got there, and, and they're probably nearing retirement age. There's a handful of of young people working in there now, but there's no real formal apprenticeship program. Um, Manus Meats down in Yolo County would be another good example of kind of a smaller plant that's doing some USDA-inspected work. Um, I don't know their business model much, but they've been around for probably 12, 15 years as well, and and that may be an example to look at too.
0: It seems like those places, too, I mean, you mentioned with the COVID effect, but it seems like those places are pretty booked out and pretty busy. So it seems like there's not a lack of demand, but it's a lack of margin? Or, I mean, what
1: what's the? That's a good question. You know, um, so anecdotally, we had some lambs harvested in the spring, and I called three different shops here to find out who could take them. And only Roseville Meat had the capacity, cooler capacity. So I think part of its cooler capacity, part of it's just the amount of demand that went up in during COVID. I think um, I think the margins for a business like that are good when they're selling product, and that's that may be the key issue here. But a lot of them are selling custom work, not just product. But their margins on the product. Selling a service is not as profitable as marking up a product, I think. And I think that's been the issue we've we've tried meat processing has been kind of this model of buying the raw material, using the labor to convert it to an end product. And what we're talking about in this paper is a service model.
0: See, I I would disagree with that. I would I would argue that it's actually more profitable to sell a service. Um, not necessarily because you have, when you're selling, when you're selling a product, you're, you're susceptible to the vulnerability and the price of that product. When you're selling a service, you have a fixed margin on every single animal. And so your profit is consistent every single one. And if you are in the position like these meat cutters, where it's six months out, um, you know, we're, we're booked forever. It's, and you're going to know you're going to make this much money on every animal you can easily increase that service cost and still maintain your clientele because you're not, you don't have those price vulnerabilities that you do when you're selling a marked up product. The marked up product always looks better on the books, but the actual value and risk of this marked up product, because it costs a lot of money to let that sit on the shelf. Yeah. You know, it costs a lot of money to house inventory, manage the freezer space. Those freezers don't run for free. And if you can fill them with customer custom work, Versus your own product that you have to sit on and sell through, I think I think you make... I, I, I'd argue that that service is is way higher value than the product. No,
1: no, no. <laughs> so I th- I think there's a valid point there. But I also think... Think about... Let's think about Roseville Meat, for example. And, and Dave will probably call me next week after he hears the podcast and rip me a new one. But that's okay. They know what they can sell. So their inventory is focused on the cuts that they know they have demand for. Now let's say this pain in the rear Dan Macon comes to me and he's got 10 lambs and every one has to be cut differently because they're for 10 different customers. That's a totally inefficient use of their labor. And yet, yet, yeah, maybe they have to mark up that service to a point where they can be profitable. But it still diminishes the efficiency of their labor. And I think that's what we've seen in some of the larger scale USDA processors in realizing that it costs them more to stop the line and do one, one set of lambs with leg stakes and rib chops and ground lamb and another lamb that's bone in legs and, and sirloin chops and racks, um, as opposed to this morning's run is all cut the same way because it's all going to one customer. So I think there's something to be said for for marking that service, for for pricing that service accordingly, but a service model also kinds of kind of presupposes that you're going to be a seasonal model too in California, and I think that's a related challenge.
0: Sorry, I got another question for you, Dan. (laughs) So so in California, do do you think these these butcher plants that are booked out for as
1: long as they are, are they running seasonal or are they running year-round volume now? They're running somewhat year-round because they're right now. They're probably absolutely full of de- of deer here in our part of the world. They're pro. I probably could not get a lamb in because they're full of deer, um, and I think that's a food safety issue, right? Um, over the long term,
0: is there an issue with mixed species in coolers?
2: I think most of the food safety is actually during the mostly the slaughter process, um, get removing the guts and, and all that, and the hide, those are where most of your contamination comes from. So actually having them mixed in the cooler, I mean, but so there's no... When li- you're
0: bre- but if you're breaking them, or if you're killing them initially, mixed species in the same plant, that's a different regulatory hoops you have to jump through, because you right. have to jump through one for every species, right?
2: Right, Yeah. Uh, And And there are other diseases that you might worry about with deer that you don't necessarily have to worry about with our livestock species. Like brucellosis would be one. Um, Chronic wasting disease might be another. So there's, I can't think of all of them off the top of my head, but there's a number of other diseases that you might be more prone, you know, more risk of exposure with these wildlife species than you would have with your domestic livestock species. Um,
1: I think the quality of the harvest process yeah. is pretty all over the board with game species, too. Oh, and yeah. the fact that they're field-dressed as opposed to, you know, in a plant, I think there's some potential. And I know that's something that the the little mom-and-pop meat shops that do game pay a lot of attention to. Mm-hmm. They're They're going to segregate their game carcasses from their... Amenable species, carcasses. Wow, we went down a rabbit hole with that. That's great.
0: Um, so, uh, Doctor Bush, uh, give me the worst-case scenario foodborne illness. Kind of from why do we have food safety laws? Give us some of the the things that have happened in America in the last hundred years that that um, have really caused some major issues, and why we need to have. Why we need to be paying attention to food safety. We can't just brush it off.
2: <laughs> Again, with the two microphones. Um, gosh, one the one that always makes me, I don't know, it brings tears, is the E. coli outbreak from, was it the 90s, where children were dying of renal disease from E. coli and hamburgers that they were getting from these big burger institutions. And that's ground meat. And it's why we have such, there's such a public health push for people to understand what that meat needs to be cooked to, to kill these bacteria that, you know, may come in the food supply. But this was a really, really, really big, scary outbreak that happened. Um, and I think since then, processing has become more regulated, more restrictive
0: What what caused it? Can you kind of go through some of the cause and where that came from? Because I think one of the misconceptions a lot of people have is is um, you know you'll think of foodborne illnesses and you'd be like oh ground hamburger it's just it's from the hamburger and all hamburger is gonna potentially get you sick and killed. But there's you know there's an actual chain of events that led to each outbreak and and you know they're not saying you can't eat hamburger. They're saying gotta follow these food safety rules so we can eat safe hamburger
2: right so usually E. coli comes from fecal contamination so that's where removing the hide from the animal and removing the gut is a very systematic process and needs to be done very cleanly so there's no contamination of the carcass Um, also these animals are inspected by veterinarians that work for USDA so if the animals appear sick in any way either before slaughter or if they can see it on the carcass evidence of septicemia, or systemic infection, then those animals shouldn't go into the food supply. Because some of these animals, even if removal of the hide in the gut is clean, they have bacteria in their lymph nodes. And if that gets ground into ground beef, then that's where some of this risk comes from. So those are kind of those critical control points that are have a lot of focus at these plants to remove those animals and reduce that risk. Um, you know, there's also points where they're measuring uh, colony-forming unit, units at plants, so they're always looking at how clean these facilities are, um, how you know how much bacteria is actually in the product after processing, um, and then it goes to the consumer. There, you know, when you're making hamburger, there's a chance that there's E. coli in that hamburger, and so you cook it to a certain degree. Uh, hundred and sixty-five. <laughs> I never
0: follow that rule. Yeah, no one does. <laughs>
2: but, but you know that there's a risk to that or, you know, you, I don't know. There's a certain, we know in the U.S., we're very fortunate to have this, one of the safest food supplies in, of any nation in the, in the world. And a lot of times we take that for granted, but...
0: So uh, I think that's a, another good point. Um, and I in uh, I know in the in the US we have a, a wet kill where we wash we use a lot of water. and in Australia and New Zealand, they do a dry kill, mm-hmm. and the dry kill gives a lot longer shelf life to the animal mm-hmm. and I was, and I, I've never had a good answer as to why. Why does the USDA prefer that wet kill versus the dry kill and kind of what the food safety side of that? And, and the other part of that comment is that when you eat imported meat, you're eating different food safety laws. They still have to get, they still have to clear us customs and, and there's a, their safety requirements, but it's not the same regulatory system and they have different definitions of different things than we do here. Yeah. So there are two two big questions there.
2: Yeah, and it's the same for eggs, right? We do wash all of our eggs, whereas in other countries they don't wash eggs they and they have a longer shelf life. They can even keep eggs out of refrigerators. Um, so I don't know the exact answer as to why USDA chooses to wash versus not. I imagine it's from a risk analysis that they've done and shown that they have fewer bacteria or colony-forming units, bacteria, on the... Products after doing these processes, I
1: and I wonder if shelf life is not a big a priority for domestic as it would be for for stuff that comes here from other places too.
0: Oh absolutely. Without the long shelf life, you couldn't get it over here, right? And so right. it would be really difficult. I think they're. I don't know the exact numbers, and I shouldn't say this publicly, and so thankfully nobody listens. (laughs) But um, I believe it's like 75, maybe even up to 90 days shelf life for a a lamb processed in Australia New Zealand, whereas in the U.S. it's like 25, something like that, 25, 30. It's almost two-thirds more over there than here just because of the the wet versus the dry. And I've always just been curious about that, but it gets to this food safety that... You know we have our restrictions here, and these restrictions are very onerous and can create a very safe food supply, but then it can very much limit, especially somebody that's starting a business trying to grow it. Especially these small people, uh, these regulations can be overwhelming. And so, you know, what do we do? How do we, how do we, maintain our food safety,
1: but allow for more processing? I let me ask you guys a question, and this is I. I I'm considerably older than both of you. So I actually was working for the Cattlemen's Association in that, when that big E. coli outbreak happened. Um, and there was a significant market disruption then, as you might imagine. What responsibility do I, as Dan Macon, grilling burgers on my barbecue have for my own food safety? Where does that part of this fall into the equation?
2: I think that's a huge part of it, and I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of focus on that from like CDC for example. They have all kinds of I don't know who goes to CDC for information on cooking things, but, <laughs> 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 but <laughs> it's really important to them um, because. <laughs> <but> <laughs> okay, I've killed Start it. My recipes, <laughs> right visit to the CDC website. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you start
0: your mornings with a visit to the CDC website mm-hmm. and end your days. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it but I sense. think that the point is that it is our responsibility as consumers serving to our family to ensure that we're preparing it well and also that goes with the countertops. I've done some studies like Thanksgiving, right? Is one of the most dangerous times of the year because of the countertops with all of the poultry juices all over, and using the same sponge to clean glasses and things like that. And you know. <laughs>
0: I, don't, I don't, know why, but but well, I know why. But uh, right, <laughs> right now, I just had the um, it's a Monty Python scene from the Flying Circus when there's they're all at their dinner table. And they're sitting there and they're eating this delicious salmon dinner. There's four of them. And then the Grim Reaper shows up and is like, You guys died because you just ate the salmon. And they're like, Oh, no, we're having a great party. You just stay <laughs> outside. And they just keep pushing the Grim Reaper off and keep their party going. But anyway, because uh, they ate their salmon. And that uh, was completely yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Dan, you had a question. Uh, what was it? <laughs>
1: So, who's responsible for the burgers on your grill?
0: Ah, yes. So, I I think uh, this is a very good point, and I I think any 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 honest evaluation of our food service pro you know our food safety program needs to look at kind of litigation protection. We're so used to in this society anything bad happens, you trace it back to whoever you can or whatever you can that's not yourself and blame them and sue them and make them go broke. And if you have a foodborne outbreak at the Placer farmers market, every single one of those businesses are too small to be able to withstand that. And mm-hmm. so you need to look at, um, you, you, we really need to from the, from the, the legal side and the legislative side, we need to make sure that there's ample protections for these organizations that are handling our food. You know, if they're in full compliance with the USDA, they're not breaking the rules and something happens, um, they should be some, They should be sheltered from basically being put out of business because that's put a lot of people out of business. Um, and so that's, I think, really important. And then I also think that there's a huge responsibility in the... In, in, this actually might be a fun segue, but I think there's a huge responsibility in the retail and marketing end of our products to actually um, also combine that with some kind of education for consumers because so often... Um, they base their marketing off of, um, polls, uh, asking people what they want and then tailoring their markets to be what they want. And then they end up perpetuating these products that either aren't sustainable or it's working in the gray area of marketing or it's, um, you know, it's just flat out against, um, you know, or it's a dangerous product, you know, not, not that all food that's not processed is dangerous it's just it can you got to know the risk you got to know how to handle it you need to know you need to wash your leafy greens you need to cook your meats appropriately you need to
2: pasteurize milk
0: <laughs> uh-oh, uh-oh. There, there we go this is half the listeners just turned off the radio there rosie um, her email address was. yeah and you can follow her at ucce <laughs> no but um but but it's true like so i I mean i'm i'm a big believer that if you want to drink raw milk is a good example if you want to drink raw milk go ahead and drink raw milk but know the risks that are tied to drinking raw milk don't think that you're doing it with no risk and if you know where it's coming from you go and you see how it's being taken out and you're you, you know it's clean you see the health of the animals and you're you're astute enough to know all of these things about the nature of that product you go for it there shouldn't be a problem with that but to you know to basically put raw milk you know out there you know in in uh, and not know the whole history of that there's a huge risk the more that's exposed when it's done on a small scale it's there's not a lot of risk but when you as it amps up and you get further and further away from where that cow is and that shelf life extends and all of these potential risks extend you can really run into some major health problems.
2: <laughs> so when I was pregnant with one of my, I don't remember which child it was, but I was walking through the grocery store and they were giving out samples of grass, milk from grass fed cows. I was like, Oh, that's interesting. I'll try to taste it. See if I can taste the difference. Then it happened to be raw milk. And I was very visibly pregnant. And this, you know, supplier, whoever will you know gave me didn't inform me of the risks or anything and I didn't know until after the fact that it was raw milk I was pretty livid after that (laughs) (laughs) why Why was I livid because pregnant women have a higher risk of coming down with any of these foodborne illnesses and the consequences of that are way more severe and for example losing the pregnancy or harming the baby so yeah yeah, it was not a happy day for that person (laughs) in the supermarket (laughs)
1: It seems to me in a perfect world. Well, we live in one, Dan. It's amazing. Then I guess I'll have to move to Rio Vista. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, that that all, there's kind of three legs to that stool when it comes to to meat, which is kind of what we're talking about, I think. You know, there's there's the responsibility of the producer to raise a healthy, wholesome, safe product. There's the responsibility of the processor to maintain the health and safety of that product throughout. And then there's the responsibility of the person who's eating it to prepare it safely and healthfully.
0: And I think you need to include the retailer in there. True. Absolutely. As a responsibility to communicate honestly what this thing is.
1: And as a responsibility to handle that product appropriately. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And that actually, not to go down another rabbit hole, but, but... one of our partners, when we were doing farmers' markets, started doing greens at a retail level, and realized that they were making decisions about shelf life that were counter to his decisions about shelf life, and yet it was still his name on the label when somebody bought it at that store. And so I think that's a that's a point well yeah, taken. Um,
0: pest management in these grocery stores is a huge issue. I mean, they, they'll sell they'll sell um, pest free. <laughs> I have a buddy who used to spray them at nights, and they, you know, he'd go down to San Francisco, and it would be all these natural, organic, um, pesticide-free stuff. And he'd lift up the crates and just coat pesticides underneath the products just to keep the bugs down because it's just that you know they there's a whole aspect in this retail level that I think gets left out of this conversation so often, yeah. and there's a huge responsibility on them to market the product honestly. That doesn't mean. Don't market it. That means market it honestly. If you know if you're going to sell that raw milk, make sure that you have it safe, um, and it's in the right temperature controlled environment throughout the shelf life. That what the shelf life is up. That it gets disposed of. That you know don't hand free samples out to pregnant women without <laughs> telling them, hey, this is raw milk. You know, it, but that's the point. They didn't. They didn't. For in your case, they didn't say this is raw milk. Do you want to try it? They said, here's milk. Try it. And I think it's really important that they ha- that they recognize their responsibility on their end as well. Because that really gets left out in a lot of these conversations when it comes to food safety and things. And they're the first ones to say, oh, well, this piece of meat that got you sick came
1: from this plant over there. They did it. And <laughs> they just they point that finger right out somewhere else. And, so I amend my statement. It's a four-legged table, not a three-legged stool. Much more stable. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The stability is primo. <laughs> um, so kind of
0: crossing that bridge... Um, the other, oh, I think we crossed it a long time ago. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, retail wise. So um, we have uh, the other kind of issue that's kind of brewing in this in this farm to fork movement or this local these local food system movements is the cost to produce that food and retail cost of food or whatever commodity market prices and the gap between the two and your local food systems cost more than your commercially produced products, but they also aren't making enough to have it be sustainable, even at the higher prices and your commodity markets are, are hard. (laughs) They're pretty, they run on really thin margins. Now you look at margins in agriculture versus any other business in their smallest out there by far. I I think it's like anywhere from three to 7% is the average commercial ag operations margins. And so, there's a really big issue, and um, our friend uh, James Rebanks talked about it in his book. Um, you gave us an article from The Guardian about, um, you know, the sustainability and this price discovery um, or the price discovery in ag products. And I was just curious what, you know, how does this relate to these local, more local processing, more all of these kind of things?
1: I'm going to use the uh the time tested extension response to that um it depends um no to, to be serious though I, we the last time we did a price survey of fruits and vegetables in our local farmers markets up here it was within 5% of the of the grocery store prices for a suite of products now the grocery store may have 49 cent peaches up at the door to get you in and and a farmer's market vendor is not going to have a loss leader to get you in the stall. That that may be one of the primary differences. I think on the meat end of things, though, there are substantial differences in retail kind of conventional prices and, and r- local meat prices that are related to that cost of production. Um, I had the realization when we were direct marketing meat. I was at a, a local food systems. Um, meeting where they had actually asked farmers to donate a bunch of product. And they were talking about food assistance in the community. And (laughs) I stood up at one point after hearing all these very well-meaning people talking about food systems and said, you know, the income that I made off of trying to ranch full time this last year qualifies me for food stamps. Mm -hmm. And you could have heard a pin drop in the room. Um, because I think there's this, the perception, well, gosh, Dan's charging $18 a pound for rack of lamb. He must just be raking money in, um, without understanding the cost of getting it there. Part of it, I think, is an economies of scale issue. Part of it, I think, if, from my perspective as a a feral agricultural economist, um, is that there's some externalities in this whole system that, that the market does not monetize, Um, and I don't know that the market can monetize it, but I, I think there's, it's a more complicated question than, than I even have the brain power to think about.
0: Multiple mic juggling here. (laughs) We're going to general chainsaws next. Yeah, no, no
2: chainsaws. <laughs> no. Yeah, I don't know. I think just the se- like you guys were saying with the seasonality of the service that's provided and, you know, how we're looking at it from a food system resilience lens. So if I just don't... See I don't know. It's challenging because those small plants were so overwhelmed or just they they couldn't handle the capacity that occurred after these larger plants shut down. So is the goal to have more of these to be able to handle that capacity or is the goal to, you know, I just, it's in, it's.
0: Well, and I think for the sheep industry, we have too much capacity and not enough sheep, mm-hmm. and we're yes we're we're really, really testing our stability in our industry. I mean mm-hmm. it's just it's it's never been so good for the sheep person, but it's never been so unstable, yeah ever and it's just it's it's really scary because we have you have a lot of capacity in the sheep industry nationwide, it's not California nationwide, and that's created. You know, that combination of other factors has created a really unstable environment that risks everything.
2: Yeah. So this report identifies it being challenged or folks who contributed to this report identified challenges making it to market because they're small shareholders or they have, you know, they don't have the numbers. So then the report suggests collaborative opportunities and they give some examples of some companies that have done that. So what where and but also certain articles have kind of vilified centralized food systems. So what's where's the gap? What's the difference between collaborative opportunities and centralized processing?
1: So collaborative opportunities have to pay me more for not doing anything different is my definition. <laughs> and I think that's one of the challenges in the meat business, right? You, you I think, at least speaking from my experience, a lot of people think they can get a dime or a quarter more a pound just if there are more buyers in the marketplace. But I don't want to have to do anything different for that additional dime or additional quarter. Just it, it'll magically appear. I think <clears throat> there was something else I was going to say that was brilliant, and it'll come back to me.
0: Yeah, no, I but I think you're right about that, that, um, you know you so often in ag you want to you're producing a product and you have a system and you're proud of your system and it works really good and then you hear your neighbor sold for a dollar more than you got and you think you should get it too and there's this it's a relative competition but there's no desire to necessarily change that operation and i think that does put a lot of pressure on the operator you know and and in ag we work on these small margins so if right. we can if we can do the same thing and then capture an additional 5% by filling out this paperwork uh, people do it all the time and so you have all of these programs that um come out that you fill out these papers and you get certified for this or certified for that and then you you know you get your extra money that way but then i don't know within production there's a lot of other ways that are more sustainable to actually get that value. You know, if you you may get a you may sell for a dollar less, but if you have five more pounds per head than the other one, you actually made four more dollars in, or four <laughs> and a half more dollars than them. So there's a lot of different ways to look at that.
1: Get back to this question on capacity and be interested in your guys' perspective on this. Um, I as as Dan Macon Flying Mule Sheep Company would love to be able to call a processor today and say, I've got five lambs to bring you Sunday, and be able to schedule that. Right now, there's only one place that will do part of that on that kind of time frame. All of the other um, small-scale processors, and to be honest, ranch butchers, are probably two or three months out. Um, Wolfpack Meats up at University of Nevada, Reno, has their calendar filled within eight hours of when they open their next year's schedule. So, in order to have that capacity that Dan Macon wants, doesn't that suggest there has to be we have to be operating it below our our capacity as an as a plant or as an industry to have that flexibility to take Dan's lambs next week?
0: Well, and then your business is not operating efficiently. the pa- the, the processor needs to be busy because you need to have that constant supply and you don't want to be seasonal. If you can fill it up year round, then you're not seasonal anymore and you're working on fixed margins, which is very valuable. Um, and that's why I think that, like, right now, especially it's not necessarily a lack of demand for that product. It's the, it's the cost of that product because a lot of the demand is actually from people that buy a steer at the local auction and want to get it butchered and put in their freezer. It's not Dan Macon who wants to process 15 lambs every 35 days and sell them at the farmer's market, you know, it's a different type of demand. Um, that's filling that schedule. It's the deer hunters that need to get their deer processed. Like that's not a food system that that's, that's a custom work for a seasonal thing. So, I mean, there, there are different types of industry within that industry that, that make that profitable or not. Cause I think that, that 15, 20 head every couple of weeks is a lot harder Um, business to rely on even though it's somewhat consistent um, those margins are so small in that type of business and you can attest to this that once they start to figure out their labor costs and things they're really not it's very hard to make a lot of money at those at with that kind of business model it can be done but it's very difficult and so they're looking to save money so there's a lot of downward pressure on those custom harvest costs Whereas in the guy that's shooting a deer, I mean, he just wants the meat. He doesn't care, you know. Heck, I just spent I just spent twenty grand on a hunt in Idaho. I'm gonna get that thing processed, and if it costs me a hundred bucks or five hundred, it's the same. <laughs> you know, that's 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 a small percentage of my of my adventure, yep. and so it's a different mentality, yep. and um, and then you have the scalability issue. So I, I don't know, I think I think there's definitely a lot of different issues here at play, and. I don't know how to attack them regulatorily. That's the other big question in my head is how do you, you know, uh, the Biden administration has put money out there to support the development of some of this stuff. How do you direct that money to something productive? What would be a productive expenditure of that money and not just a subsidy to somebody who's going to process deer or a subsidy to somebody who's going to run a poor business that will be broke when the subsidy runs out?
2: Yeah, and I think you've brought up a fair point too that, I don't know, competition in an industry is important, but also should we be subsidizing a certain processor over one that's always paid their fees and followed the rules? And so, you know, I don't know, maybe that's what this funding is going towards is those that are maybe new businesses, smaller businesses, to help them with those fees if they're able to make... Um, inspection you know demands and all of those but just with the fees that are holding them back
0: would it be better to to, to <laughs> would it be better to take that money and have it pay for the inspection fees for all processing all processors across the board yeah
2: that's where i'm going to like Instead i don't know why it would be preferentially to one type of processor over another if we're looking at food systems yeah. they're all important we need our large processors yeah. for efficiency and
0: but if you paid for that pro- or you know if you took that money and went it to pay for the inspector's service that would be a level playing field for everybody it would be a big kickback for the big producer big processors uh, but then it would also be free versus grant funding for a development of a new plant you
2: know. Right. And they're you know talking about how we need a meat inspection program in California that's equal to USDA. And we do have a meat and poultry inspection service in CDFA, but they're looking more at the processing side than the slaughter side. And it's that slaughter side that would make it equal to USDA and would lo- allow for those kinds of sale of those products. But that costs a lot of money. That program to have an inspector at these facilities would cost a lot of money. That's federally trained. And so maybe that's where that funding should go to if we're looking for more of a, I don't know, equal, more opportunities for retail.
1: I think that's a that's a really complicated question. I think, I haven't thought this through entirely yet, but I think... Um, some sort of tiered system that acknowledges the importance of food safety but also acknowledges the value of a more localized supply chain where it makes sense um could be valuable i think um i think there is a bit of an unlevel playing field between the very 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 large operations processors and Especially,
0: especially the, sp- the foreign-owned processors and, like yeah. beef, and the, I think there's some major. Yeah, you you don't necessarily want to subsidize those no. companies. No.
1: That said, I think I think you make a good point about um, lamb production and and um, trying to think of another word besides sheep industry. Can't come up with it, um, but. I think I think we are in a precarious position as a, an industry just conglomerate. Conglomerate, that's what we are. That's what the that's sheep, it. The sheep conglomerate. That's it. The, the United sheep, States the, conglomerate of sheep. The sheep syndicate. We're yes. more of a syndicate. Yes. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I think we've just solved the problem. We we've realized what we are. It's
0: all marketing. That's it all is, at the end exactly. of the day. Just put it back to marketing <laughs> and that's it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, uh, I th- I think there is some some need to look at that um, as a kind of a it's complicated whole. Um, but I I think it's important,
0: and I, and I to me, I my grandpa always preaches, you know, get to the basics. And so on this issue, I keep trying to ask myself, like, what is that basic responsibility of our federal tax dollars or our state tax dollars? We pay taxes every year. And that money is supposed to go to things. And if they take that money and give it out to Joe, who has a great idea, but it's unproven, versus taking that and putting it towards something else, like what is the right responsibility of that money? And, you know, is is it correct for the USDA to extract the money for the program from just the processors? You know, do the retailers need to share in that cost? Do, does it need to be subsidized by the nation as a whole that's consuming that safe food, that's benefiting from that safe food? Like where exactly is that responsibility? And
2: I think they also identify that there's regional, um, there needs to be regional buy-in. So there's a this, what's it called, the NIMBYs, not in my backyard syndrome, where... Yeah, there. everyone loves this concept of a regional food system, but that means that there's a slaughterhouse and a processing plant in your county. So... It's not just the food safety regulatory process that's the problem here. It's waste management. It's yeah, water It means you're going to have to
0: have a rendering shop. You're going to have trucks going in and out. You're going to have some kind of s- livestock storage. Right. You know, th- livestock like a feedlot or uh, hen houses or some kind of hog barns or something. You're going to have right. livestock right there. And, I mean, you go ahead and try to open up a feedlot and a slaughterhouse in San Jose. Right. Thank like you. <laughs> that's not happening. <laughs> right. So,
2: yeah, so I think it's there's a lot of that too. It has to also be a regional there has to be buy-in and a commitment and maybe even financial support at that level.
1: Yeah. I think part of that that NIMBYism gets down to the scale it takes to do this profitably, profitably too. I mean, I think there's there is the perception that if you're direct marketing, you can do it, you can make a living on 100 ewes. Um, and I, I'm not sure that's ever been the case, and I'm not sure it ever will be the case. Um, you know, there's some value in part time operations <clears throat> like ours, um, but we got to be realistic about scale too. And that's, I, and part of me thinks we need to quit apologizing that it takes a fair bit of rangeland to run a cow or run a ewe. I think that's a good thing, actually.
0: Hundred ewes at hundred and thirty percent lamb crop, retaining twenty ewe lambs to maintain your hundred head number, at five hundred dollars a head, which is well over today's current market, is fifty-five thousand dollars gross a year, and that doesn't cover a single expense. That doesn't cover anything, and so you're talking about a, a net, a net taxable income on an operation like that, of maybe five thousand dollars. Yeah. If you're lucky. Yeah, absolutely. Depending on how, yeah, if you don't pay yourself, then you can maybe get a little more tax paid. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's an, it's a challenge. And, um, and I think it's important though, to recognize that there is value in scale. There is in, and without the larger industry, the smaller scale really struggles and the almost the more, the larger the industry is, but then the more diversity within that size, the healthier it is for a smaller operator to be able to enter and exit easily when they want, mm-hmm. because it's important if you have somebody that's not concerned about a profit margin and they're the ones that are setting prices that they're not going to be as good at setting prices. So if you have, um, you know, if, if you're just, if you're doing it as, cause you love it and you want to do it for fun, you don't have the same drive to capture the full value as somebody whose whole business you know, and livelihood is based on that value capture. You really need both to work together to come up with that price discovery.
1: This is very appropriate, because tonight we're starting our, our beginning farming academy, and the first agenda item tonight is to get the folks that are taking the class to think about what's different between a hobby and a business. And I'm not gonna give that, in case they, well, they won't listen to it till after this, so we can we can talk about that if we want. But I think there is a substantial difference between a part-time business and a hobby as well, and that you're focused on tracking your costs and generating a profit and paying some return to your labor and management expertise um, and that I th- you know one of the things that James Rebanks said that I keep coming back to is that most of the the sheep farmers in England have a side gig, or sheep farming is their side gig and I think Probably for every farmer regardless of scale. There's some kind of diversity in their income stream. It may all be in agriculture But very few of us are putting all of those eggs in one basket
0: Yeah, I agree with 100% of that Rosie does too (laughs) She's she's a little nervous. It's her first time podcasting Um, (laughs) Sorry Oh, boy. Yeah, um, so the last thing I wanted to talk about, it was uh, one of the other articles that popped up was um, it was a local small chicken operator that uh, went into their local Costco and got excited about the four ninety nine dollars rotisserie chicken that mm-hmm. Costco uses as a loss leader and doesn't make any money on. And they, they factored... lose,
2: what, $40 million
0: a year? Yeah, lose $40 million a year on it or something crazy. Um, and then they did their math on theirs and just the purchase and processing of their chicken is five twenty-five. was there just, that's the cost of buying the chick and, and the processing that doesn't include any labor feed, any of that stuff. And so that really kind of gets to that idea of, and, and I think it, I think it opens up the discussion on the responsibility of retail, um, in honestly marketing the product because loss leaders have an incredible value. Um, lamb has always been a loss leader or, you know, has been considered a loss leader. When you look at the, you look at a shopping cart and the shopper that puts lamb in their basket tends to have a couple bottles of wine and a couple other very high margin products. So you can lose money selling lamb while making so much more on these other products. So lamb is kind of this kind of thing. But then when you set that expectation for that consumer that this should always be this cheap, that does a lot of damage in the long run to your commodities, especially to anybody that's trying to compete with that. Because Costco has an agreement, I mean, I don't know the details, but I'm sure Costco has an agreement with the Chicken House where they're making a very small margin at high volume.
2: I think there was even a conversation a couple of years ago of owning their own vertically integrated poultry facility for like Costco would own the birds from hatch to processing hatch to, I don't know if that exists. I just know that that was, yeah, but either way, I'm sure there's
0: a, I'm sure there's a contract out there because Costco is the largest retailer in the world and they handle enough demand that if you can get 10 cents per bird or five cents per bird, I mean that, that's a lot of money. And, um, you know they're going to probably do something like that but anyway one way or another you set up a false economy and a false price discovery because mm-hmm. one you have huge volume trading at this loss leader value and those birds are not getting pushed to try to actually find a real value of what that chicken is mm-hmm. and then you're establishing in the mind of the consumer that I want my rotisserie chickens for 4.99 because that's how they're that's what they're worth they should always be 4.99 mm-hmm. and you know how do you how does the industry and how do we you know, maintain that honest marketing, you know, and anyway, it, this is a big question, but it gets back to this. When you produce your local food, you have to pay a lot for it. And even the lot you're paying isn't necessarily covering what it is.
1: About once a month when we were at the farmer's market, somebody would come and look at my price list and say, well, I can get lamb cheaper than this at Costco. And generally my answer was, yep, sure can. I think, Part of it comes also to that expectation that we have as a society. And, you know, everybody probably has looked at those graphs that show what percent of our disposable income we spend on food here compared to other countries. Mm -hmm. And we're consistently the lowest or in the five lowest. Um, And and I think that's a conscious decision on our part.
2: And we, I mean, we also have these systems that allow for that like there are systems that do make a margin that are you know they're centralized they're feeding animals in one location and slaughtering them not far from that (laughs) so and then they're widely distributed throughout the country and so we do have the way that these centralized systems are made allow for that kind of lower cost to proteins what this is talking about is local food grass-fed systems that have a higher cost to that so then then there has to be a market to that and that's where i that's where that disconnect is for me so who's this person willing to pay this much more for a local product when they can just go to Costco and buy, you know, some imported meat that is, cause there's that
0: grass fed Australian <laughs> lamb. Yeah.
2: And it, so it's, it's like voting with your wallet. It's kind of making that it's, it's the consumer who has to make that decision. And, you know, I think a lot of times we tend to vilify these centralized food systems when they're really efficient and, you know, provide protein at an affordable cost for most families um so i don't know i'm very conflicted on you know should i don't know if this article was saying it should cost less or if it should be
0: yeah well i think it's just that there's so for me one of the biggest frustrations i have is when you have a a um a marketing trend so you have grass-fed is that that's the best you can do for your health and for the environment and everything and so then You have a few people that are able to produce it honestly, and they start that trend and they market that grass fed product. And then these retailers do this research and they say, okay, consumers want grass fed products. So then they sit down and say, how do we market and make our 100% of our product grass fed? And then they come up with these certification programs, they look at the USDA definitions, and at first, they said, "Oh, well, it's it's an animal fed less than 90 days corn." So, your JBS goes out and buys 1,100 pound steers, puts them on feed for 89 days, sells them as grass fed. In the lamb deal, you feed them for 65 days, you market them as grass fed. They're the they're 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 uh, distorting the story to fit the marketing, creating a false. And because they're able to to push so much volume into that through their Marketing and certifications, whether they're in-house or you know whatever whatever they're using, they end up flooding that market, and that premium shrinks very quickly. And you're no longer able to capture that value that it actually costs you to sell a grass-fed product. And I think you can look at that with almost all these marketing trends. That that's what they pass. And so these, it's almost it's almost like I think I feel like in ag we always blame the packer because they're the ones writing our checks. But there's this whole segment in retail and the marketing side of this retail industry and, and its proteins as a whole is, is really where this price discovery is getting really smashed down because they want to buy it as cheap as possible because the consumer doesn't want to spend much money and they're fighting with the other retailers to make sure they have that customer base. And it's really hard. The you producer gets really frustrated because he doesn't have a lot of market control often this year they do it's the first time in 30 40 years well that packers if you think about it that packers almost in the same situation when they're setting price with retailers they don't have that same price control they you know they they'll they'll lose their they can lose their retail customer but um that there's so many other individual customers and in America we're so affluent and even though we spend less percent of our income, we spend way more dollars. Right. (laughs) Like, as as a whole, we spend a ton of money on that stuff. I almost triple, I think, of any other country. Um, And so there is a lot of money and dollars out there that are being fought over, but it's so driven by this marketing, and it's almost a false... It's a marketing with a false price discovery behind it.
1: Do you think part of that's driven, too, by where we prioritize food in our society? I mean, I, I, I think about... I had this realization when I was just out of college, some good friends had spent um, all kinds of money on vacations and entertainment and things like that, and we were spending money on buying sheep and staying home. Um, not that one is better than the other, but but it's it's partly kind of what we prioritize as a society, too, I think. Uh, yeah, I,
0: I would, yes, I would say yes, I agree with that to a point. Um, I think we take for granted, or we don't realize our affluency, I guess is a way I would say it. We don't realize how affluent we really are and how much we take food for granted um, when you start going. I remember when I went to Italy, when when I was in college to live there, I went to the grocery store and it was oranges. I was like, where's the, where's the apples and the pears and the peaches and the plums? and the- <laughs> Where's all season? my fruit? And it was out of season, and they just had oranges in there. And, and, but, and, and that was in a, you know, that's a first world country. They're very developed, very affluent, all that. But it's not the same as here. It's, it, we're, we're incredibly, um, incredibly affluent and produce a ton of different food. And I think you see it in a lot of policy nowadays where they take that secure food system for granted. Um, because there's a ton of pressure on this stuff. And these, my biggest fear is when you start talking about how do you um, support these local food systems, they end up doing so much... They, they end up doing indirect damage to these larger processors because they didn't have them in the room and they didn't really think through with everybody that's involved um, in coming up with these policies.
2: Right. It needs to be... I mean, it's the industry as a whole that needs to work together. That's where that collaboration needs to come together. And it's, you know, it's I my question is, okay, well, what is everyone's incentive to doing this? Is it just because they have a good heart and want a healthy industry? Well, maybe. But it's really it comes down to a lot of these relationships and having conversations. And I don't know. And I think this is a start. Like, this is a really good start. I don't know that everyone who needed to be in the conversation was involved, but it sounded like they did talk to all the USDA plants in California. So I think it's a it's a really good start um, of having these conversations, and we need to have more. I don't think that it identified the solutions. There's a lot of recommendations, but some of them are, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think there definitely needs to be some... Um, industry industry produce production input into that too and not just the small small scale producers that are demanding it but also some larger scale ones that nec- might ne- not necessarily want to use it you know to really try to get as much input as you can mm-hmm. because it's a it's definitely an issue definitely an issue where it's amazing to me how with this covid how our whole food system is really running on a knife's edge right now i don't think people really realize how vulnerable it is i mean it, it's it's one little hiccup away from not delivering, <laughs> you know, not delivering your milk next week. Almost, I mean, it's really vulnerable, and not because we're not producing it; it's because of it's the whole supply chain issues. But um, yeah, I just I was really excited to see the conversation starting. Um, it's good to see um, that they're putting some money towards maybe doing something. Um, but it's all, awful easy for people to get that money and put it towards pet projects, and we see no difference, you know. Ten years from now,
1: I think food system has to incorporate the whole system, right? And that's that's everybody from um, from the person wanting to put their own lambs in their own freezer to um, very large scale production. It's everything from from the seed stock person. If we're talking lamb as part of the food system, it's everything from seed stock to to um, to that end user that's buying. Lamb at Raley's or, or wherever. And, um, I think it's important to include all the players in that system and talking about what we want the system to be, how we make the system better and more equitable for everybody that's a part of it.
0: Yeah. And try to drive out that self-interested motivation <laughs> or at least account, for it. Yeah. You account know, for it. Yeah, definitely account for it, but, um, but not discount the opinion of somebody, you know, if they do, Lobby a position that is to their benefit. Can you know make sure you honestly consider it. Don't just blow it off because oh well that's going to help them. So we're not, yeah. You know, it's um well. What if we subsidize all of the USDA inspection? Oh well that's going to help Superior. Let's not consider it because it came from Superior. No, it needs to be considered and <laughs> thought
1: about. As long as we subsidize um, mule lambs that are raised and born and raised in the Sierra Nevada foothills. I'm, you know, everything else is just gravy after that.
0: Yeah, I would definitely discount that one.
1: <laughs> I discount that one in favor of fine wools in Solano County. <laughs> what do you mean we don't work together? Yeah, exactly.
2: I have no stake in this conversation. <laughs> yeah. <so>. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> well, on that note, it's an hour and 15 minutes, so we marathoned it again. And um, I appreciate... The time and I, I, you know, we wanted to have this discussion to kind of use it as a as an example to kind of get people to start having these discussions. Springboard. Yeah, we don't have the answers. I I think I don't think anybody has all the answers. Everybody kind of knows what might work in their area, and so it's more of a, Mm -hmm. you know, start thinking about this, start talking to different people because there is, you know, the government is throwing money at this, and so if if you have an interest or a passion or an idea. Now's the time to really Jump start in. getting involved <laughs> yeah. um, and hopefully influence a little bit for the better. Because if I was up to planning it as king, it would not work for anybody but me. So <laughs> it's important for it's important for everybody to get their 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 foot in the door. So anyway, well, cool. thank you guys. So this is uh, I'll take us out again because I'm I'm uh, have I have the microphone in my hand. Um, but anyway, this is sheep stuff you should know. And thank you very much. And we will talk to all you guys
1: later. Bye. So. Hasta luego.